Welcome to the Birthful Podcast. I'm Adriana Lozada, and today we're talking about postpartum hemorrhages. Why do they happen? How often do they happen? Are there specific risk factors? What can be done if they happen? Can they be prevented? And if so, how? Are fear and protocol making things worse? Marin Green tells us more. Stay tuned. This episode of Birthful is brought to you by Design My Soap the world's first online soap-making studio. Go to designmysoap.com and use the code BIRTHFUL at checkout to receive a bonus BIRTHFUL-branded mini lip balm with your order. This episode of BIRTHFUL is also brought to you by Expectful, an evidence-based guided meditation app created specifically for those trying to conceive pregnant or new moms. Reduce your stress, reduce your complications, and improve your connection to your baby and partner. Learn more and sign up for a free two-week trial at expectful.com birthful. The Birthful Podcast, talking to maternity pros to inform your intuition. Hello, mighty parents and parents-to-be. As always, thank you so, so much for listening and for all the love you give the show. If what you hear is helpful, please do take a few minutes to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or on Facebook or on Google, or even just to tell your friends about it. It really, really does help. So thank you. All right. I am super excited for today's show on postpartum hemorrhages, as I feel it's one of those topics that affects us not just as a, at a physical level, but also emotionally. And then there's so much to it that in in terms of protocol and how what we think about it and how we approach it. I'm just grateful to have Marin Green here today to help me sort it out. So welcome, Marin. It's a delight to have you here. Yeah, me too. Thank you so much for having me today. And it feels like one of those things that it's like about time. Like, I can't believe we hadn't <laughs> connected before. <laughs> Podcasters unite. Podcasters as I like to unite. Say. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, so, why don't you start telling the listeners a little bit about yourself and also all the wonderful things you do in your podcast and all of that? Sure. Well, my name is Marin, and I am one of the founders of Indie Birth Association, which is a global community for encouraging and educating women and families as well as creating and inspiring new midwives. We also have a new midwifery school as of this past summer. And that takes up a good deal of my time. Uh, podcasting goes along with that. I have a podcast called Taking Back Birth here on iTunes as well. And in that podcast, I just kind of ramble about different midwifery and birth topics uh, for pregnant women and birth workers. Um, I have eight children, so that is another good hunk of my work every day. And last but not least, I am a home birth midwife here in Sedona, Arizona. So that's that's a quick summary. Yeah, and so many things that you do, right? And just I, I have one kid, and I can't even. So I have much appreciation <laughs> for you and all that you do, for sure. So sweet. Well, mm. thank you. Yeah. So... Postpartum hemorrhage. This is a topic that I've been wanting to do for a long time because mm. it it seems to be so prevalent. And mm. I want to talk to you about like why is that? And and you know, like get into the into the the topic obviously a little deeper, but why don't we start just talking about what is what is the normal physiology 
for yeah. that third stage of labor for that, you know, after birth. Right. Yeah, that is relatively simple to answer. So the normal way that the body works, and this could turn into a rabbit hole, I suppose, but we can come back to how the body works optimally in labor, because we really can't talk about postpartum hemorrhage without addressing the normal physiology of labor. But if I put that aside for a second, um, after someone's birthed a baby, hopefully in the ideal scenario with the most beautiful hormone collection cocktail available, then the body is so wise, right? So the mama's holding her baby, uh, the body is elated to have the baby born and automatically gives the signal to the body to release the placenta from the uterine wall, where it falls into the lower segment of um, the uterus. And without anybody's help, without anybody tugging or pushing or anything like that, the mama feels the pressure of the placenta and she births it right on her own into a bowl. Um, the body is, is primed to do these things just as it is to birth so that we survive. You know, postpartum hemorrhage is something that has become really common is scary. Um, you know, where would we all be if that was um, a thing that everybody was experiencing, right? Our bodies are made to birth and our bodies are made to release the placenta once it's done its job and to hold our blood and for us to remain feeling healthy and well. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so in terms of numbers, one of the things that I researched before talking to you was a sort of I wanted to see like how prevalent it is because I know it's on it seems to be on the rise. And I found that a really wide range of percentages, anywhere from 1% of births have a postpartum hemorrhage to 18% um, mm -hmm. uh, that it is more likely to occur if you have a cesarean birth and that in the U.S. it's around 2.9, so 3% of births, which still seems like a big number. Right. But, yeah, at the same time, there's been from with no really big change in anything from mm -hmm. 1998 to 1999 if we compare the numbers of like serious injuries while giving birth at that time mm -hmm. and look at 2008 2009 so 10 years later compare the statistics mm -hmm. there was a seven percent increase uh in in no it was like 70 something percent increase and in, in, in injuries when giving birth and the U.S. is one of the only countries where this increase happened. So I've talked to enough people here to in, in on this podcast and of all kinds of walks of life and, and knowledge based and, and, and outlooks to know that when you have like so many things that don't change and something changed drastically alone, mm -hmm. it's not about the birth. It's about the system. Sure. Sure. And that's the most complicated part of looking at research. And I admittedly am not drawn to research. I, I know what I know, and I'm happy to read and respect the people that do the research. But I think the problem with a topic like this is that it's like comparing apples and zebras. Um, we're not really looking at the woman's prenatal history. We're not looking at her nutrition. We're not looking at the choice of birthplace or the role of her caregiver. We're not looking at any other aspect of her health. 
Um, and, you know, so I don't know really how we can draw any conclusions when it comes to something like this, because there's too many variables. Right, right. But yeah. even but but at the same time, we're faced with we're we have what we have, right? We have a system where 98 percent of births happen in the hospital and right. where hemorrhages are kind of happening more and more and now you have recommendations from the governing bodies if you will like ACOG and A1 which is the Association of Women's Health Obstetric and Neonatal Nurses um, who've been doing a postpartum hemorrhage project to you know really address the this problem that they're recommending that everybody every birth get Pitocin after giving birth. Yeah. And so that's like, a, a, this is why I get into the question, is birth really that broken that every single woman out there, every single birthing person needs to get Pitocin to right. avoid hemorrhaging? Right. Well, of course not. I would agree with you. Birth is not broken and women are not broken. Uh, the system is broken. And as a home birth midwife, I knock on wood rarely see hemorrhage. So, you know, that's not a, a rising statistic isn't the reality for many of us that are, are lucky enough truly uh, to serve women that are healthy and, and responsible for their own care and for their health. Um, but you know, there are, there are plenty of midwives that do for the same reasons that I think the medical system is, um, they're not treating it like a three dimensional issue. They are treating it like disaster control. Mm. And think how much fear is created with that, right? Um, I mean, people are scared of birth. And a woman bleeding is on the top of everybody's list, whether they know a whole lot about birth or whether they know next to nothing. I have people come that, of course, are curious about home birth, interested in home birth. And if they're new to it, I can almost guarantee you that this is a concern for them, whether or not they know anything at all. So I think there's a huge amount of fear around this. Women are kind of led to believe that this is a really random occurrence, um, you know, hence why many women will still choose the hospital. So again, there's so much more behind it. And when someone comes into my office and has a history, say, of postpartum hemorrhage or just has a concern or question, I feel like it's not just a simple answer. Um, it's not just, oh, I carry these tools or this is how we would handle it. It starts at the very, very beginning with pregnancy nutrition and working through a lot of the issues that can go alongside somebody that is bleeding too much. Uh, but if we don't work with that fear, you know, I, I don't, I personally don't know where else to go with it um, because people are not numbers. Yeah. And I think that's really important because we, there is that fear and the fear does affect not only how everyone shows up at the birth, right? In fact, and how the providers are thinking about how they're feeling about the hemorrhage and how they act upon the hemorrhage and, and things that... So let's deconstruct that a little bit more, like put the fear on the back burner a little bit mm. and go into... So here's what I'm thinking. Recently, I had uh, a dad come onto the podcast to tell his his birth story, like the, and his postpartum, just give his point of view, his perspective. And one of the things that did happen during this their birth was, um, mom did have quite a bit of blood loss, and it 
didn't, but we hadn't talked about it. We hadn't addressed the possibility, even without whatever caused or however that blood loss occurred. He mm-hmm. wasn't prepared for the quantity. And mm-hmm. and I think that it was for him afterwards a good conversation to have of explaining, like, what are the things, if the hemorrhage is happening, mm-hmm. what are the steps that, because even though it's so scary, there are medically many things that can be done to address it. Right. Well, and devil's advocate here, of course, I didn't hear this birth story and I don't know this person. But for people that are new to birth or having their first baby, um, do people really know what a lot of blood looks like? Because blood we're sort of trained to believe is scary, right? So mm. any amount of blood after birth, just depending on how it looks to somebody, number one, how it's collected, number two. And most importantly, if we're really going to talk about the definition of a hemorrhage, I'm sure you know, just put it into Google, right? A hemorrhage is 500 cc's or two cups, according to, you know, whoever comes up with these things. Um, Women will lose more for sure in a cesarean and be stable. So where did this definition come from? What are we comparing it to? Are we actually looking at the woman? Um, so with this, this person, uh, was his wife showing signs of blood loss? Yeah, like, I know. And with her yeah. specifically, it was like, I was mm-hmm. there, I was the doula and she mm-hmm. was almost passing out and was white mm-hmm. and it ended up being like one level down from having to be mm-hmm. at hematocrits for a transfusion. So mm-hmm. there was in her case, and and yeah. her and she had a family history. Her mom knew, and I'm not saying anything that he didn't say on the right. show. So, um, mm-hmm. so in her case, it was like twofold. It was the fact that indeed it happened, but to him, it turned out to be a post like a traumatic, sure PTSD sure. event because he thought he was going to lose his wife because he didn't understand the the all the steps of recognition and response and readiness of you know of how to the levels of how to address a postpartum hemorrhage so i think i want us to like get into that a little bit just so that people understand all the good things that it can be done if it's happening and then take that three-dimensional step back into you know, what are the risks and what can cause, why is this happening? Why is this uterus not working? And what are the things that can be done both pregnancy and during labor kind of preventatively to not need all of these things? (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, Yeah, that's my absolutely uh, favorite discussion, of course, because, you know, it does happen. I'm not here to say that no one ever hemorrhages. And especially when there's a witness, whether it's a father or a friend or even a doula, right? It can really create a PTSD response. Nobody wants to see that. Um, so for those families or people that, you know, decide to enter into a next birth, uh, having this kind of information I feel is really important in their processing, not to negate what happened, but to try and do their best to prepare for a different scenario because it doesn't have to repeat itself, even though uh, the obstetrical world would tell you that postpartum hemorrhage uh, is a risk factor for postpartum hemorrhage. But the midwifery view, I think, is different for sure. Yeah. So let's take a quick break before we get into and jump right in into those like what you can do. We'll be right back. 
I want to tell you about three super nice guys in Indiana who are obsessed with the soap you put on your body. So much so that they even have their own soap manifesto, a soapy festo, if you will. And if you go to designmysoap.com to read it, you'll find out that they're insanely passionate about creating the best all-natural soap they possibly can. And that's why their ingredients are non-GMO, gluten-free, vegan, and cruelty-free, as well as responsibly sourced. That definitely gave me the peace of mind to try them out and have some fun creating my own personal soap while I was at it because it turns out that designmysoap.com is the world's first online soap making studio. So first thing you do is choose the right base for your skin type and I went ahead and made a super dry skin bar because the winter is killing my skin. And so from there, you get to choose a bunch of, you know, what your essential oil options are. I'm not one for strong scents, so I didn't feel fill in all the options, but I wanted to try what it was like, so I went with a clove-lemongrass-spearmint combo. Uh, if you want to avoid scents altogether because being pregnant, your nose just picks up every little smell, then you can just have a, a non-scented bar. Then I got to select some add-ins for moisture and exfoliation. I chose some oats uh, and customization does not stop there. You can then name your bar of soap and decide what the background image is for the label. I can see this being a great idea for older kids too, getting to name their own bar of soap like Annika's Destinkifying Soap. Anyway, it was super fun. Go to designmysoap.com to design your own perfect for you soap, choosing your ideal combinations of soap base, essential oils, exfoliants, and add-ins. Use the code BIRTHFUL at checkout and receive a free BIRTHFUL branded mini vegan lip balm. And that is at designmysoap.com. And we're back talking about postpartum hemorrhage with Marin Green. Um, so, yeah, Marin, let's go through, like, if it's assessed that a mom is, you know, it looks like she's losing more than two cups of blood. So she's hemorrhaging. What are some of the things that can be done to get that into control? Okay, so just to provide a little bit more clarity, it's not the two cups of blood. Many women will lose three cups of blood or who knows what's normal for them and be completely stable and healthy and fine and show absolutely no signs of blood loss. So my perspective, of course, is somewhat unique, perhaps for some of your listeners, because I don't attend hospital births. So I'm not familiar more than I could be with the protocol that goes on there. All I can tell you is how it looks at a home birth, mm -hmm. uh, which again is after the baby, the placenta is born, hopefully. Um, and we w just watch the amount of bleeding that the woman has. And most importantly, we watch her her vitals and her emotional states. Is she connecting with the baby? Is she here? Um, does she have color in her face? Does she feel good? Those are all the things that we look for. So somebody, of course, conversely, can hemorrhage with less than two cups of blood loss. So the amount is really inconsequential. It's more her, um, they call hemodynamic response to the blood loss. So if it appears that a mother is not responding well to any amount of blood she's lost, really it's about getting the placenta out first if that hasn't happened and, um, you know, figuring out why this is happening. So the most common reason for hemorrhage, even in a really perfect birth scenario, would just be that the uterus is tired 
Um, you know, maybe it was a really fast labor, maybe it was a really long labor, either of those can precipitate too much bleeding. So we want to identify first why we think this is happening. And then I think depending on the practitioner, depending on the midwife, we all have different ways of, of handling, you know, what we think is going on. And of course, just trying to keep the mom from losing any more uh, and getting her stable again. Mm hmm. Um, and so that is a great point because I find it is a, a, a that that perspective makes total sense for me because, you know, we're all different sizes and shapes and have mm -hmm. different blood volumes. So mm -hmm. looking to see if you are, you know, if you if you're falling apart or if you are keeping it together for lack exactly. of better words, right, of, exactly. of what is your response to this and, and be attentive to it. Great. Um, and I find in that sense, so giving the count, because I do so many births, mostly all my births um, in hospitals, I mm -hmm. am familiar with like the steps and doing research to talk to you. I was looking deeper into um, the protocols that are out there and I'll link it in the show notes just if people want to know. But it is a very like specific assessment um, where, again, it's such a different point of view in that like the people that are really trying to minimize the percentages of hemorrhages from a systemic point of view, the first thing they're zeroing in is how can we better measure the blood loss? So let's weigh the pads. Um, let's really have like how much blood loss has actually been lost because it is hard to assess it. You know, a little drop of blood in water can look very dramatic. Right. Um, but so they go to the first, like trying to identify really how much blood is lost and then go through, OK, do Pitocin and then other medicines like prostaglandins or something else to try to stop the bleeding in that level. And if that's not working, then assess, you know, at the same time what you were saying, like, is there any bit of the placenta left in that might be causing, you know, or why is this uterus so tired? So let's try to give a fundal massage as well. Um, and then see if there's, you know, is it being caused by the, the, the from the uterus from, from a hemorrhage or is it maybe from uh, a trauma, just like a, a big tear? Like, right. what is it? And then finally, if they're having like different clotting agent issues that their blood can't properly clot um mm. and so like those are the things they assess and then they go to you know pitocin which can work really well and then not if not up it to like prostate in our neck of the woods it's misoprostol so some mm -hmm. prostaglandins and then maybe packing the uterus and, and then you go into surgery and whether you need to do an, an a transfusion or even get to something more serious like and you know at the hysterectomy which would be it's like so so rare but there are many steps to handling this is i guess the point Right. And obviously, one of the key differences of being at home is that, you know, you don't have a team of people. So I'm not going to waste time measuring blue pads. It's just more of a matter of her response and maybe her vitals. So her blood pressure, her pulse, her respirations, um, you know, signs of shock, basically. And the benefit I think that midwives have is knowing these women really well. 
So I'm not walking into a birth where I don't really know the woman or have never met her before. And I really have to only pay attention to numbers. Um, numbers can be really important. But again, knowing that woman is key in knowing how she's handling her blood loss. So that's a pretty tricky situation, you know, for most most women having birth in the hospital, um, they're not really known as people to the extent that uh, we're able to do with midwifery care. Mm -hmm. And and th that is absolutely true. Um, and I think it goes hand in hand of also knowing that, that, that it makes sense why in a place like when you have a system that's structured like that, then mm -hmm. they would find solutions to address the problem in a way that is more universal right with check boxes sure. um but that sure. still it it does address and get to stopping their hemorrhage mm -hmm. um so in that sense i want people to know that there are many i mean i'm sure you see this at home births as well that there are many th ways many things you can do to address a hemorrhage if it's happening Yes, of course. Um, you know, again, midwives are all different, whether they carry pharmaceuticals or not. But surely we can do that at home, we can administer Pitocin or, or Cytotec or whatever it may be. Um, you know, that's not something I'm super comfortable with. And unless somebody is really rural, then the hospital may be where they need to be with a true hemorrhage. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, of course, yes, we're going to try to control it uh, while we get the help we need. And that can also come in herbal form, um, you know, using the placenta, using the cord orally. The mom doing that is really helpful with hemorrhage. Um, just holding her uterus, you know, clamped until you can get the help that you need. But yeah. again, um, in my experience, you know, I see different births than you're probably seeing. I, I just don't see hemorrhage, you know, more mm. than once every couple of years. And again, it's not necessarily anything I'm doing. Um, it's that these women are healthy and they're taking responsibility. And as we talk more about maybe the labor hormones, it'll yeah. become clear why that's a pretty rare thing. Yeah, but I wanted to start there because I want to, you know, I just have this dad that shared his story in my mind of like letting them know that even when a hemorrhage is happening, which is rare and will, you know, lesser in hospitals than at home birth. But even then, to to lessen the fear, mm -hmm. because, the, I mean, and the, yeah, the, that's one of the reasons people go to the hospital. That's that's we're not going to go down that pathway because that's really complicated. <laughs> as, as I say that, I'm like, oh, can I swallow those words? But yes. um, <laughs> but. That the fact that even though it can seem like a really, really scary situation, that there is a lot of things that can be done. Yeah. And honestly, you know, that's that's the work that I feel like I get up and do every day is we don't control birth. We don't control life. Um, yes, there is fear. Yes, there are things that people need to work through to make their choices and have their births. Uh, but ultimately, I feel like there is so much information out there that is encouraging. Uh, there are so many resources to work through fear. You know, there's so much that we have to make birth a powerful experience rather than making it fearful. Exactly. Yeah. So in the spirit of normalizing the process a little bit more, um, because I find that one of the things this dad also picked up on was that, and, and I see this in births in the hospital all the time, and I know you've written about this, um, that as soon as the baby is born, then there tends to be 
a feeling of fear and urgency that comes into the room. Oh, yeah. Let's get this placenta out. Let's stop this bleeding. Like, let, we got to do a thing. Oh, yes. And that can, you know, moms can pick up on that, of course, and, and, and the partner. And, and how does that, like, can you speak a little bit more about that? And what do new moms or, or pregnant people that are going to have their kids and might be in the situation, what they need to know about that so that it, you know, be aware of it? Yeah, yeah, that's a huge topic and passion for me. There's a really great article online. Maybe I can send you the link. Yeah. Um, Carolyn Hasty is an Australian midwife, and she wrote up a piece with another, I believe, Australian midwife um, called Optimizing Psychophysiology in Third Stage. And, you know, it's a brilliant article and speaks to what midwives have known and practiced for as long as midwives have been around, uh, which is birth is more than physical. So we talked about how does the body release the placenta? How does the body, you know, control postpartum hemorrhage just on its own? Um, it totally does. But these other factors, what they would call um, psychophysiological factors, are not acknowledged in the medical world. And unfortunately, these are the factors um, under which most women will hemorrhage if messed with. So these kind of things include, as you say, fear in the room, adrenaline. Um, that is a palpable feeling. If you've not been to birth or you haven't had a baby yet, you don't know. Uh, you can watch birth videos, though, and, and try and simulate it yourself, you know, once the baby is out. How does that make you feel? Are you are you breathing faster? Are you nervous? Um, this is the feeling that again is palpable in most most birth rooms, even at home, even amongst midwives. This is something that many midwives are fearful of. So the mid the minute the baby's out, uh, the lights might even come on. The energy in the room changes. They're prodding and poking at the baby and putting hats on and rubbing the baby and talking to the mom. All of these things are taking her out of her neocortex. Uh, which is the part of the brain that is her animalistic side, which is regulating this whole process perfectly. Um, it doesn't need our interference in most scenarios. Um, so, you know, any of those things is taking her out of that space, creating adrenaline in her body. And then suddenly her body's like, oh, God, um, maybe I should halt what I'm doing, you know, uh, just the way we would need to feel safe to actually birth the baby. Uh, we also need to continue to feel safe and protected to birth the placenta and to keep the blood that we need within our bodies. So, um, you know, in, in obstetrical circles or, or people choosing hospital birth, that might all sound a little bit crazy or a little bit woo. But honestly, it's not. It's been researched by many people um, that there is so much more going on in our brains and in our hormonal system during birth, after birth. And if those things are respected, if we can honor that the body actually does have a plan, then that can eliminate a lot of the risk factor for hemorrhage, which is, I mean, it's just amazing, really. It's it's fascinating. Yeah. And to me, like, it sounds woo if you don't know physiology. If you know right. physiology, it's not woo because it's 
you know, you have th- feelings and thoughts can create an emotional response and a physical response. And the thing that you're supporting above all at this point, especially, I mean, what is Pitocin if not synthetic oxytocin? You want to have like a super heightened oxytocin right at that moment so that, that con- those contractions are nice and strong and that uterus can contract. And oxytocin is released when you feel safe and loved and calm and, you know, not not fearful and scared and flight or fight or flight or fight. (laughs) Um, So that is like you in order to support the oxytocin, you which is a physical thing, physiologically, you have to support the the mental, the, the psychological. Yeah, but then what is active third stage management? And why are people still doing it, you know, when um, it's not necessarily supported, at least in normal low risk women? Um, why are we doing that? Why are we yanking on placentas and injecting things? And, and you know, <laughs> we're getting in our own way, we're getting in the woman's way. And then we're wondering why we have to control a bleed. It's, it's absolutely crazy sometimes. Yeah, it's very, it's it's very cause and effect what came first. And I do want to talk more about that, but we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Mighty Ones, want to know my solution for resetting my nervous system? It's meditation. But you might be asking, what is so great about resetting your nervous system? Well, if your nervous system spends more time in high alert and doesn't get back to a baseline often, then your body is in constant state of stress, which is, of course, not healthy. I have quite a bit of sustained stress in my life, and so I find that meditating is a super easy way to make sure I break up those stress signals. You may be thinking, that sounds great, but I have no time to meditate. The good news is that if you have 10 minutes, then you have time to meditate, and it becomes even easier when you use a meditation app like Expectful. I have tried other meditation apps, and I really like how the Expectful app is designed to fulfill your pregnant or new parent needs by focusing on whatever you need at that moment. Whether it's better sleep, connection with baby and partner, embracing your identity, lessening stress, dealing with uncertainty, Expectful makes it super easy for you. Plus, I really love the voice of the person who reads the meditations. Go to expectful.com slash birthful to sign up for their free two-week trial and check it out for yourself. Don't forget to add the slash birthful part so they know who sent you. So we're back talking about hemorrhages. And yes, I mean, the whole active or third stage of labor, it's... Ah, that's why this is such a complicated issue because a lot of the things that we do to try to help indeed can also hinder the process it's like taking it away from mom's body to do it to do the process externally right exactly and as we've hinted at several times it's not just the moment of birth that needs to be left alone for optimum physiology it's the whole labor process and it's taking it back to having the woman feel powerful and in charge of her pregnancy, making sure she's ideally and optimally nourished to prepare her body for the birth process and to prepare for some blood loss. Uh, blood loss on its own, as we've said, isn't necessarily abnormal. It can be totally normal if the mom is not showing any signs of it not being good for her. So if she expands her blood volume during pregnancy through nutrition, then she has a little bit of blood to lose. And again, for most of the women, at least that I see, um, 
it's not a problem. They have, they have plenty, plenty, plenty of blood in their bodies. And, you know, the little bit that they lose after birth doesn't affect them. Yeah. And let's speak a little bit more about that, because I find the whole like that's one of the things that's lately fascinating me is the the whole idea of a, a pregnant person's uh, blood volume will increase for many reasons, but up to like a third more. Mm-hmm. or more a uh, half yeah at least right like from a third to a half is it mm-hmm. yeah 50 percent increase in blood volume for a singleton and of course you know nearly a hundred if you were to have twins so um, that's amazing you go from you know your early pregnant weeks say about eight weeks of pregnancy the blood volume starts to build very slowly and by the time you hit about 32 weeks you should be at 50 percent more plasma running through your veins to support all of your organs in optimum function to obviously, you know, have a healthy baby that's growing well to supply the baby with an amazing blood supply from a well-nourished placenta. So that if, if you know, if we could hone in on one key aspect of prevention, um, that would be it. Because again, for most normal, healthy women, it's not a blood clotting disorder. It's not something sort of wacky that's very rare. You know, it's very, very, very preventable to build up your body with what you need to birth a baby. And then, you know, like we talked about, birth a placenta and be done and feel great. Mm. That sounds like a lovely plan. It does. Uh, it is. It is, it is it's right? A really lovely plan. Yeah. So, you know, what are some of the things that need to be considered when building that blood volume? Because obviously the blood is, has a very specific composition and you need your minerals and you need like I think just just the idea of consider, looking at it from that point of view of like, oh my gosh, I have to like add 50% more blood volume. Mhm. What what Yeah. yeah. Um, Well, that concept alone, which is called blood volume expansion, uh, was largely, you know, written about and researched by Dr. Tom Brewer, who is no longer with us, sadly. Um, But that concept alone, blood volume expansion, I feel like is so crucial in the education of pregnant women. Um, I think it's a really fun thing to teach and talk about. Pregnant women, you know, can go either way, right? They either aren't really into food and everything is not good or it is. And I think no matter which way it's feeling for a pregnant woman, this information gives them permission to eat and it gives them a bigger reason than, oh, I'm pregnant and I just have to take care of myself. Like there's actual science um, and there are ways we can make sure that a pregnant woman has expanded her blood volume by the time she's about 32 weeks. We can look at lab values. Um, of course, there are lots of other ways we can assess this. But in other words, it gives her a project, one that she can be really good at and she can know that she's done a good job with. And then when she's about to go into birth, um, I think it really adds confidence you know, to know that she did the best job she could in growing this baby and nourishing this baby with a healthy blood supply and that she was probably going to have an awesome birth. Uh, So I do reference the Brewer Diet quite a bit. I have a couple of podcasts on that information. We have webinars, we have blog posts. Um, You know, essentially, it's a whole foods diet based on calories and protein. And I do treat each woman as a unique being. So he did set certain numbers for calories and for protein. And I do like to offer this information, but I work with each woman as a completely unique, you know, being. So what she needs to do this to expand her blood volume, it might be different than 
the next person. Uh, but we work with the numbers as they fit her lifestyle, the way she eats, um, lots of food journals and shopping for food or cooking with, cooking together, um, all of these things to really get behind this concept that we do. We need this extra blood to have a healthy pregnancy. And, um, you know, even if that were proven false tomorrow, I don't think it's a bad idea to eat great, healthy, whole foods and to take care of yourself. So I feel like I can't go wrong with this information. And like I said, I don't, I don't see a lot of complications. Um, and Dr. Brewer would say, of course, that postpartum hemorrhage is just one of many scary kind of pregnancy complications that can come out of not nourishing the pregnant self well enough. Mm, and I personally love Dr. Brewer and his diet because I was fortunate oh. enough to um, my daughter. So she's 12 right now. When I was oh. pregnant, my childbirth educator um, mentioned the Brewer diet and had us do like worksheets and had. So I was yep. introduced to it like ooh, even before I became a doula. And um, awesome. yeah, yeah. And I really appreciate his point of view on salt that yes. you shouldn't minimize it. You should like, yeah. you know, not go crazy on it, but you need minerals. You need like the benefits of salt for all this new blood volume that you have to have it be, you know, nutri you know, have like nutritious balance in your body. Totally. And that's a crucial component of the brewer diet, of course, that's just, you know, massively misunderstood by the medical community. Um, I don't think it's, you know, wrong to say that most doctors, for example, they aren't trained in nutrition. They don't really address it during pregnancy. So most women, if they're seeing doctors, aren't getting any kind of nutritional advice at all. So the Brewer Diet is totally accessible. There's even a Brewer app now. So you can look that up and get information either way. But salt is one of those things that can come up in the medical world. And women are told to avoid salt, that it's bad in pregnancy, that they'll swell, that they'll have all these issues. Um, and again, it's a misunderstanding. Dr. Brewer did not mean table salt. He did not mean MSG salt, the salt found in you know, potato chips or hot dogs. Uh, he was talking about really awesome quality Himalayan salt or sea salt, the kind with minerals, as you said. So we need the minerals to transport these amazing foods that we're eating, the amazing liquids that we're drinking around our body. And that is a crucial part of expanding the blood volume. So that along with uh, protein and calories, and again, he has set amounts. Um, it's, you know, 75 to 100 grams of protein a day, on average 2,700 calories a day. Um, but again, there's more to it than that. So I would encourage people to listen to the podcast that I have or do your own research uh, just because you really want to get the balance of protein and calories. Um, and there's some other information in there that I think is really fun and interesting. But uh, in any case, getting what you need during pregnancy enables you to make this extra blood supply. Women that do this usually report feeling great. Uh, they don't often have too many what we consider common complaints of pregnancy. And like we're talking about today, they go into birth with a really well-nourished blood supply. And, you know, that even affects, we could say, your labor, um, you know, dysfunctional labor or, or some kind of situation that can make labor more difficult. Uh, we could also, in some cases, attribute to nutrition. So you really can't go wrong with that. And uh, I don't know, somehow take this back to postpartum hemorrhage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but but <laughs> but it is. And I love that it can be so tangible. Like I know many times in this podcast, the topic of nutrition comes up and 
it is because you know it can minimize gestational diabetes it can minimize preeclampsia it can like it can do so many lessen the risk of so many complications and it's lovely that it's now also connected to postpartum hemorrhage <laughs> like yeah, you really need to sure. eat well and that's something that you can control and it makes sense because you're you're going to feel better and it's the building blocks for your baby so that makes sense to me that if you know birth is a big physical event if exactly. you are in a better shape it's going to go better Sure. And all of these things are connected. Again, it's the perspective of, you know, is birth just physical? Or are we just these physical machines that produce a baby? Or are we more complex? And I and I think you would agree, you know, we are more complex. And all of these parts of ourselves need attention. Um, nutrition, of course, is huge self care, all of these things that go into um, preparing us. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention, as far as those those kind of topics as related to postpartum hemorrhage is dealing with the fear, frankly. Um, mm. There are many women, of course, uh, as we're saying, that have experienced hemorrhage and will go on to birth again, whether it's at home or in the hospital. And, um, you know, just encouraging people to to kind of dig into their story more, learn about the way birth works, about the hormones of birth. Many women, when they do that, uh, they're looking back at a birth they've had and they were told they hemorrhaged, that maybe they get their records. Um, and as they're learning about the way these things work, they see very clearly that their body didn't screw up. You know, their body actually responded in the way that we'd expect bodies to respond when they're messed with in labor um, or in a way that we'd expect a body to maybe respond if it wasn't well nourished. So it can really help heal some of that fear around um, postpartum hemorrhage when we're able to get this information and go back and kind of review and see uh, maybe where things went off track a little bit, because this kind of bleeding, in my opinion, um, yes, it can happen rarely and very unexpectedly, but more commonly with the kind of statistic that we're seeing, uh, this bleeding could be prepared for, it could be foreseen, um, you know, in the sense of preparation and all the other things we've talked about. Mm -hmm. And I think I, this is a perfect time to talk a little bit about the risk factors for postpartum hemorrhage. Um, and what do you consider risk factors? And I know that I, I looked through and I found the list. So if I have some here and we'll see what matches up. <laughs> yeah, well, I was thinking about that as well before this call. And obviously, there are quote unquote risk factors that we'll find online, right? Or um, in medical textbooks, or even in midwifery textbooks, which are often taken from obstetrical textbooks. So we do have those and we can talk about them. But then I think there are, you know, the midwifery risk factors or perspectives that are different. Um, it seems to me that the medically accepted risk factors, they kind of seem, they're like outside of the woman. Does that make sense? Um, it's like the woman is just kind of a machine. Like mm. if she's had a postpartum hemorrhage before, she's automatically at risk. Um, if she's had, you know, an abnormal labor or uterine atony, which means the uterus doesn't contract, um, abnormalities of the placenta, like it's very like all of these things that are just already wrong with her. Uh, right. can produce excess bleeding. And I'm not saying, you know, that's not true. Um, if somebody has a very long labor, for example, it's, it's very possible that their uterus is tired and bleeds. But again, they're just very 
they seem very black and white to me. Like <laughs> there's not a lot of room there. Yeah. And so, and, and, but I think it's important to mention them because a lot of people are going to give birth within a system that looks at these factors. Mm-hmm. So they're going to their their labor and and birth is going to be affected or it's going to be informed by the provider's view on these things, right? And so like you said, yeah, it's got to do with a lot of like it's that tech technocratic point of view of birth mm-hmm. that the yeah, mm-hmm. mom's a machine and we can fix it through technology. Um right. <laughs> Thank you, Robin. Um, Robbie just, Davis Floyd. Robin Davis Floyd. <laughs> I ha- I'll, now I'll link, I'll link to your podcast. I'll link to the stuff that you said. I'll link to Dr. Brewer's diet. Right. And I'll link to, I have a podcast with Robin, uh, Robbie Davis um, on s- explaining these different views of birth. Yes. So I'll link I it on love there. I love, her. I love her book. Yes. Love her. She's so yes, fantastic. That is a must read. Everybody must go read Birth as an American Rite of Passage right now. That is all. Yes. Let me <laughs> write down that I need to add it to the birth to the show notes with birth notes to so the birth show notes. Um, so what they're looking at is like anything a risk factor would be anything that might affect the plus the uterus or the placenta. Mm-hmm. and how they're functioning mm-hmm. so it's like placental abruption placenta previa um an over distended uterus which might be too too much amniotic fluid or a baby that's too big you know and too big meaning like over 8.8 pounds which is not uncommon but right 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 but that's too too it, you know the literature says that that is a risk factor for them that uterus having a harder time being able to contract into back to its normal size. Um, having multiple pregnancies, especially after four pregnancies, um, it's a higher risk. The having gestational hypertension or pre preeclampsia, um, previous oh, prolonged labor, which we talked about if the birth is too long. And I, I, I like that you also brought in a birth that is too fast. Mm-hmm. Because the intensity, the the uterus has to do exactly the same amount of work, but the intensity of a fast birth puts a lot, like that that uterus goes through a lot in a very short time. Mm-hmm. Um, they also mention infection. They mention obesity. Um, they mention medications used to induce labor. Well, uh, sure. Right. <laughs> to like make that uterus contract. Yes. Um, I don't understand. Yeah. I don't understand how that's not understood. Right. Right. But, yeah. but it's like it's so you're externally doing this extra you're messing with the uterus. And of course, it's going to then not be able to respond right. in the intended normal way because it hasn't just been left to labor on, on its own. Um, use of forceps or vacuums general anesthesia and medications to stop contractions in case of preterm labor. Like that was the list that I found with risk. Right, 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 right. Yeah. And that's the standard list. And like I said, even as midwives, it's not that we don't learn these things. Um, It's not that, you know, we don't have them tucked away in our brain for the rare occasion that they come up. But, you know, it's just not a reality uh, for most midwives in in the midwifery model of care, you know, this past year, having had in my in my work over two, let's see, two or three 10 and a half pound babies, um, a set of twins, um, I birthed my ninth baby. And none of us, you know, these are all observational stories, obviously. But 
there was nobody that hemorrhaged in in that small group of so quote unquote very high risk women. Uh, so again, there's just so much more to it than this, and I encourage people that feel like they have one of these risk factors to kind of like take it back, you know, take it back with all of the subjects we've talked about. Um, we have a postpartum hemorrhage course that might be helpful for pe people that really want to dig deeper because none of the things, you know, aside from you know, placenta previa or a placenta accreta. Um, no, I don't think the other things are standalones for postpartum hemorrhage. There's just too many other factors. Right. And important to know that these are risk factors, not you know, guarantees. Sentences, right. right. Exactly. exactly. Um, and I think I think we did touch upon all that. Like, I, I encourage people, if they want to know more, to obviously go and take a look at your podcast and take a look at your class and, and all the things you have, because this is such a deep topic. And it's so kind of misunderstood at the point in time where we are right now. But if you are going to give birth at a hospital, then know that it's, you know, let's let's normalize this, that there's going to be fear, but an anxiety related to it, because that's kind of what happens at that time. But sure. that doesn't mean that something is wrong with you or your body. And maybe that it was the circumstances that made it so that you might need Pitocin, not necessarily that, you know, your, your body is, is is something's up with your body. Right. Well, I think that brings up an interesting point, which is investigating your caregiver's beliefs slash protocol slash practice on third stage. You know, do they do an active third stage management where you're automatically going to get Pitocin? Is that up for debate? Um, even in home birth circles, you know, what is your midwife's normal course of action after the baby's out? Uh, ask other people whose birth she's attended. You know, how did it feel? What happened? How did it look? Um, how many hemorrhages has this person experienced in their practice in the last month, in the last year? Um, I think the other side is whether you choose to birth at home or a hospital, any woman who's birthing can take the responsibility to understand how her body works. And I'm sure it's happened in a hospital where a woman has birthed her own placenta. I'm sure it's happened. Um, I love to see that at home and I don't even see it all the time. So there's something that has to be reconnected in our deeper knowledge about how this process goes. You know, I believe that we know how to birth. Again, regardless of where we choose, we know how to birth babies. We also know how to birth placentas. And that sounds really silly. Um, but you know, through the course of my own birthing, that's something that's really become a passion for me, uh, birthing my own placenta. And we captured it on video, actually, with my last daughter's birth. Um, it's a really awesome visual representation of this is how it looks. Is this that is still online, Marin? Um, Deva's birth is thebirthmovie.com. You can put in your email and see her birth. Uh, but within, I'd say, five minutes after she's born, um, I ask for a bowl and I birth my own placenta into the bowl. Like I felt it sitting in my body and I did it. And I'm not any better or different or more amazing than any other woman. But having that connection, uh, I'm not scared of hemorrhage. You know, I. I experienced what a midwife would probably say was a hemorrhage with my second, which was my first home birth. And, you know, long story short, I've been on a road since then to kind of like get rid of that fear for most of us and to internalize it in a sense of like, I birthed my baby, I birthed my placenta, I don't need help. I'm not disconnected from those moments. 
Um, and that is a huge piece is reclaiming this knowledge of third stage, because this isn't something anyone needs to do for us. Uh, again, so I think that's I think that's helpful regardless of settings. Again, I'm sure someone out there could write in and say, like, I've had a hospital birth and I totally birthed my own placenta. I want to hear someone say that. I want to hear that too. I <laughs> yeah, do because I, do. I haven't necessarily. The, I think the only times that I have seen um, a placenta, you know, be born without any help um, was one specific birth and I do have permission to talk about this birth of uh, a second time mama I was there for her both of like her first and second baby and the second baby just came really quick and she was she happened to be staying at a hotel because they live out of town but they were here for like a month before so that they could give birth here They're, they actually live out of country um, and it was like she called me and no, don't come over yet. And then <laughs> dad called me. Okay, come over. And by the time I got there 20 minutes later, the baby had been born <laughs> in the right. hospital bathroom. Um, and when I walked in, she's like, I don't know what to do. And she was sort of standing, you know, half naked with a little robe in the bathroom. I'm like, let's get you down. Let's get you down. And then right after that, the placenta, she's like, the placenta is coming. I'm like, sure it is. And, but, you know, she was upright. So that, I think that's the, that is the only time I have seen nobody mess with anything. Yeah. And I know it's so amazing and beautiful and simple. And like I said, that's part of the reason I feel like I do this work and, and what indie birth is really about is, you know, how can we reclaim that? How can we reconnect? Because it's not a big deal. Like all of these protocols in place and this person does this and we need this machine and this thing doing that. Um, it's all to take the place of what we actually can do, what we were made to do. And so part of my mission, like I said, has been getting this even visually back to women. So um, my birth is a good example. You can see that on video. Um, I have a couple of clients recently who wanted their videos, um, their births videoed. And this is something I spend a lot of time prenatally on though. Like I don't, it's not like it just happens at the birth. Like we spend a lot of time talking about it. We spend a lot of time um, going through how it might feel. We actually do a kind of pretend simulation. You know, I have my baby and my placenta doll um, and the woman can kind of like get these, these feelings and this information back into her cells. Like mm. I birth a baby and then I feel these cues and I birth a placenta and often I'll coach women through, you know, they'll have their babies and I'll just, you know, be around and be observing them. And, um, are you feeling any cramps? You know, are you feeling any contractions? And they might answer or not, but, more and more now, women are, at least the ones I'm seeing, are taking back this responsibility. And like I said, uh, they're beautiful, amazing women, but no more so than any women anywhere. So um, reclaim this knowledge, women. You know, it's not up to someone else to do. It's not their their um, thing to finish. You have your baby, you can birth your placenta, and you can work on this in varying degrees, even if you're choosing to birth in places where, you know, this is crazy and they'll look at you like you just have 10 heads. Um, we have to take baby steps back to reclaiming the mm. third stage. I'm curious, Marin, uh, like, how is there a time that you could say an average between the baby being born and the placenta being born? That, what you see in these types of births? Um, 
<laughs> well, funny enough, I had a, a two hour delay with placenta a couple of weeks ago and that was all well and good. Fine. She wasn't hemorrhaging. It was totally fine. And that was the longest I've waited probably ever. Mm. Uh, but most commonly, I'd say it's less than 15 minutes. Less than 15? Yeah, less than 15. Yeah, which, so looking through the literature of what the expectations are in the hospital and, and you know, most guidelines. So th- th- obviously providers will vary and, you know, inform yourself and ask these questions. But right. they're looking for a placenta to be born around eight to nine minutes mm-hmm. after. Um, and half an hour after that, they start labeling it as um, retained placenta. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's really hard. <laughs> you know, these numbers can be so damaging to, to women and really to our culture, we're getting farther and farther from understanding what birth is. So, yeah. um, you know, all I can say about that kind of thing is people, people have to do their research and want to reclaim parts of this process or all of this process. Uh, you know, I understand and respect and support that people choose different things and that's totally fine. But like I said, I think even in, in hospital settings, there's ways for people to reclaim some of this power. Absolutely. Um, but I think yeah. that bringing, bringing it up and having people know what providers in general are expecting Mm -hmm. and that is like the first step to being able to figure out if you're in the same plane because if you don't know that that's the expectation and then this person's like oh we need the placenta we need the placenta then you start then you you can end up carrying those feelings of my body doesn't work something's wrong what is up and then you go on this hormonal you know change which is not necessarily supportive of the physiology um so that's why I bring it up, because I think it's important to for people to know what field they're playing in. Oh, for sure. I mean, education is, you know, probably half of the battle. And if someone was told they have, have had a hemorrhage, like I said, um, it can be helpful to get records or to go back and try and understand what happened. And understand that we we have to take responsibility for these things, too, in the sense of, um, do we even know what happened? You know, sometimes women come here and they told me they've had a hemorrhage in past births and they don't really have any information. They don't really know how much blood they've lost. Um, they don't remember, you know, what went down. Um, and again, they didn't have the knowledge that, you know, this is how birth could look. This is how it could work. And then this is how the placenta is born. So if we allow people just to kind of like do these things for us, then we're going to get put on the conveyor belt and then we just get what we get you know, and sometimes it's um, accurate to what is going on. And and sometimes it's really not. So all you can do really is go forward and get great information and, uh, you know, make yourself really powerful, have support, work through your fears, um, take our course on postpartum hemorrhage, take really great care of yourself. And, you know, chances are it, it should be a really rare occurrence. Yeah, yeah. And so if people want to follow what you do, listen to the podcast, get the course, like anything, connect with you, how can they do that? Sure, it's indiebirth.com. And on Would you the spell site- that? Yes, it's I-N-D-I-E birth.com. Indiebirth.com. We have um, tons of blog posts. We have courses. We have a five-week birth class that's happening all online. We have our postpartum hemorrhage course and many other webinars uh, from other teachers as well as ourselves. We have a couple of Facebook groups. And the podcast can be found on iTunes. 
Taking Back Birth is the name of my podcast. There's also a complete archive list, um, IndieBirth.com slash podcast archives. Everything is found there, all of 100 plus episodes. So I think that's it. We've been doing this for about the same amount of time. We've oh, got yeah. 100 and so awesome. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so cool. Working on the hundreds. Working on the hundreds. <laughs> Thank you so, so much for being here today. It's been a delight. Yeah, thank you. I know we should do this again. I'm sure we could talk for hours and hours and hours. So I appreciate uh, you having me here. Yeah, we'll do it. Thank you. Mighty Ones, I love to hear from you. So share with me your thoughts. And if there's a certain topic you'd like to know more about, let me know. Go to birthful.com where you can learn more about me, the show, Patreon member benefits, send me messages and more. I'm also on Facebook or Twitter as at birthful. So come say hi. This episode was produced by me and made possible by you the Breathful Patreon supporters, and by the wonderful people at Expectful and Design My Soap. To best support this podcast, please support its sponsors and get free goodies while you're at it. Use the code BIRTHFUL at designmysoap.com to get a free vegan mini lip balm with your soap order. The title song for this podcast is Vive Ace by Kevin McLeod, and the sponsorship song is Air Hockey Saloon by Chris Zabriskie. Find them both at freemusicarchive.org. Also, the Birthful podcast is part of the Parent On Demand Network. I'm Adriana Lozada. Please join me next week when I'll be talking to another maternity pro to inform your intuition here at the Birthful Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.